yeah, and then we cycled to Halifax with 150 bucks, and we were living off of about $4 a day. I remember peanut butter and jam sandwich in the morning, and then a can of tuna or a can of beans at night. And then after doing that for three or four days, we'd like treat ourselves to a Subway sandwich. I think had I known what we were getting ourselves into, and had we had any brains about us, we wouldn't have done it. Because we did it all wrong, but it was that being so naive and stubborn kind of pushed us to keep going. That's Lori's story, and this is the stories that brought you here. A podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wagaluk, and it's my pleasure to get to sit down in conversation with people to hear the stories that brought them to this beautiful part of the world we live in, and also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Lori moved out to Pender in 2010 after a phone call that they received from their dad encouraged them to move out from the East Coast to the West Coast. And at that time, Lori was in Halifax. They had moved there in their early 20s by way of a cycling trip across Canada. Lori's going to describe what that experience was like going from coast to coast with a friend on two wheels. As well, Lori will describe how they decided to start their own contracting business through the generous encouragement of a boss they had at that time. And Lori's going to describe a very interesting philosophy of how they want to conduct business. And we're going to have an interesting discussion hearing about Lori's experiences on the island and what it has been like for them and some of their friends as being some of the people that look different on the island and the impact and lessons learned from those experiences. All that more in a really fantastic interview with a very great person. If this is your first time here, I'd like to say welcome to you. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back. If you are a sporadic listener and you wind up coming across this from time to time through Facebook posts or other means, I have numerous ways for you to follow to stay up to date with current episodes. I'm on Twitter now if you use that at Stories Brought. I have a YouTube page as well too called The Stories That Brought You Here. And of course, there is a Facebook page called The Stories That Brought You Here. Those are some of the ways to stay up to date with new episodes coming out. And you can listen to this podcast via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or through Podbean. Many different ways to listen. And as the year goes on, I hope to be releasing an episode every two weeks. So if you like this show, then that's good news. So first, a little bit of music, and then my interview with Lori Story. Welcome to the podcast. We're doing it. Thanks for having me. Okay, excellent. I always like to uh, give the context for what's going on for people listening. It is kind of first thing on a Saturday morning. How's your day been so far before you got here? Uh, my day is just great. I was getting up and getting ready to come over, and a, a friend of mine has a trash hauling company, and he was. I heard some rummaging in my yard, and I looked out, and he was getting rid of some scrap metal that I had laying around. So. I made breakfast for him and we had we had coffee this morning and it was a unexpected visit. So that was a great way to start the day. Okay, some scrap metal laying around the yard. Yeah, as a byproduct of having 50 projects on the go in a carpentry business, there's always, there's always stuff in the yard. 
Okay. Yeah, totally. I guess that's a classic theme about being a contractor is that your contractor's yards usually look a little bit messy with debris from work that they're doing. Totally. I always, my landlord will come and he'll say, like, you got to clean this stuff up. And I'm like, well, that's actually different stuff than the stuff you told me to clean up a month ago. <laughs> this is a totally new pile. I cleaned that up and replaced it. Okay. That's awesome. You keep a rotating stock of stuff in <laughs> yeah. your yard. That sounds exciting. Okay. Well, let's uh, get into the first traditional question of this podcast. And that is, of course, what brought you to Pender Island? It was 2010. And I was living in Halifax. And uh, my dad, who's been on Pender since the since the 70s, I think, uh, he was having some health problems and he kind of called me up and uh, he can be a dramatic isn't the word, but well, dramatic is something he can be, but a, a fatalist approach. And he said, I don't know how long I'm going to be around for. And I've got three properties of old cars and, and a house that needs a lot of upkeep. Uh, I think you should get to Pender and, and help me clean it up and, and get ready to inherit all this stuff. So it was a uh, grim phone call and I took a, a month to pack up my stuff and, and give notice at my job and everything and moved back, uh, moved across the country and came to Pender for basically the first time. I had visited a bit as a kid and a teenager, but uh, just kind of moved in here blind into my dad's house. And his his health was pretty much fine. Like he had maybe had a a bit of an injury and a, a bit of a cold, but by the time I got here, he wasn't going through any health concerns. So then suddenly I was on Pender and just kind of fell in love with it. Like it did not take more than a week of being here to say, "Wait a minute, this is not what I expected." Uh, as someone who grew up in Vancouver and then lived in Halifax, my thought of a, a Gulf Island in a small town was kind of desolate and especially back in 2010 like the the stuff going on in the community here was so vibrant and so busy that after a week I just felt totally immersed and now it's what almost 13 years later and I've, I've never looked back okay well what was going on during that time that you remember as being so vibrant me and Christy Hawks who is my partner at the time who ended up living on Pender for probably four years uh we moved here and I remember going to the meat draw as soon as we got off the ferry and my dad was like, look, Laurie, like pick an age, be it like 19 or 25 or whatever, but treat everyone on Pender as if they're that age. So the teenagers or your friend's kids, treat them with respect as if they're 25. The 60-year-old or 80-year-old guy at the meat draw, treat them like they're 25. Give everyone a chance. Like we're all on the same page here. And we went to the meat draw and I just sat down with a bunch of strangers and had a hoot. And being from the city, uh, I would stick to my demographic. Like I liked people my age who were into punk rock music like I was and our hobbies were going to concert or the bar or whatever. And then uh, coming to Pender, I was instantly exposed to so much, so many people who were great, just good to get along with who were outside of my demographic. And right away, like everyone was like, okay, we're going for sushi after the meat draw. And there was that really good sushi restaurant in the Driftwood. And then so when we did that, someone's like, okay, there's a flash mob. Like we do this, we're going to flash mob the farmer's market. So we're practicing the dance at the field outside the pub. <laughs> and and then it's like two days later. And then I'm learning all these flash dances with a bunch of strangers and then they're like, well, tomorrow's the cardboard kayak race. Like, you got to be here for that. And it just, it suddenly every day was something 
exciting happening and something pretty ridiculous. But just seeing people make so much with what I assumed would be so little was a really, really refreshing change of pace from kind of city life where everyone's busy and burnt out and everything you do costs a lot of money. Yeah, totally. And so you said that you had some experience with Pender before when you were a teenager and coming over here as a kid because your your dad lived over here. Yeah. And what was your impression of the island during during those visits that you had that was uh, vastly different, it sounds like, from that uh, 2010 experience when you moved here? When I came as a, I, I say I come to Pender maybe once every two years from like my preteens. And uh, we'd always stay at those cabins outside Browning that are now staff accommodation. And my impression of Pender was that someone was always at the bar playing Brown Eyed Girl. <laughs> like just a live band because <laughs> it just seemed like no matter what, that's what some some hokey band playing Brown Eyed Girl was on. Um, but I didn't really, I didn't immerse myself in the community at all. Like I was a kid coming and we'd just kind of stay at Browning and really do the tourist thing. And then I became a teenager and my trips to Pender were, me and my friends would always come dressed as pirates for some reason and, and just kind of be drunk on the beach the whole time. Uh, and again, not immersed in the community at all. So I had a very narrow kind of tourist view of Pender but applied a small town view to it that I would have about any Gulf Island or whatever, where it's just a retirement community with, with absolutely nothing going on. Okay. Fair enough. No, that's, that's interesting to hear for sure. And it was, it was really neat because we talked on the phone and had a little pre-interview before we did this. And I was under the impression that you actually grew up here. It was kind of funny, right? Cause my wife and I moved here in 2010 as well too. And uh, when I got to know who you were a little bit, I thought, Oh, Lori's, been here for a long time way longer than than we have but uh we moved here at, at uh, roughly the same time but i want to uh find out uh how you got to halifax and uh the story about what brought you to halifax as well too that's where you moved from before you got here but maybe if you want to explain to people how you uh, found your way to halifax yeah i was i was living in i lived in langley for a little bit after living in vancouver and I graduated high school and has been, I was probably 21. So it was four years or so. And I was starting to get this thing where I think a lot of, a lot of people in their late teens and early twenties get it where in high school you have, you know, you do school all year, then summer comes and you have two months off to just do whatever you want. Uh, and it's, you know, summer is what every kid talks about and looks forward to. And then got a job after high school and then realized that summer wasn't coming or, or summer the way that I knew it wasn't like it was just work every day and and maybe get a week off vacation at the end of the year and it was a big reality check but I I think I just settled into life really fast after high school where it was just I got a a, a decent job and a decent had like I had actually I had everything that maybe you would think you would want. I had this great relationship I was in for four years and decent job and, and all this stuff, but life just looked the same every single day. And I definitely dealt with that, I think, by drinking a lot. And I was yeah, twenty one and I just kinda looked at my life and I said, Everything that I've done for four years has been on repeat now, like the same same everything and I don't see a way out of it and I don't have any real hope that it's going to change because I don't even know what else to do with life 
maybe that sounds really dramatic for a 21 year old. But then I was watching a, I think it was just a YouTube video of a, a folk musician who does all his touring uh, by bicycle. And there was just these pictures of him in the mountains with a bicycle with a guitar on the back and tons of bags and just and riding town to town and playing concerts in people's houses. And it just looks so different from my life and looks so free. And I just walked into my roommate's room and I said, Hey, do you want to sell everything we own and buy bicycles and bike to Halifax? And he kind of looked at me like I was joking and then looked at me for another couple moments and said, yeah, sure. And, uh, and basically we did, I put a notice at work and had many long, hard conversations with my partner about, can we make this work long distance and then what do we want and, and everything. And, uh, then it was, yeah, that was in winter. So then by June, yeah, everything that I had got in my life to that point was now in four panny bags and we were on our way. So, which is also really funny to think that granted it was only maybe five years, four or five years of, of working full time and, and collecting stuff. But after selling everything I owned and everything I had worked for, for my entire life up to this point, I was able to buy a $2,000 bike and I had $150 left over. And that's what we left for Halifax with was 150 bucks. And it was, there was so many things about it that were eye opening and, and, and saying, wow, like I, I feel like I've amassed this, this net worth as a person working every day and all the stuff and, and being like, oh, if I, if I have to sell it for value, it's worth $3,000 or, or whatever. It's a, it just put a lot of perspective into, into life. And yeah. And then we cycled to Halifax with 150 bucks and we were living off of about $4 a day. I remember peanut butter and jam sandwich in the morning and then a can of tuna or a can of beans at night. And then after doing that for three or four days, we'd like treat ourselves to a Subway sandwich and, and continue on. Whoa. Okay. I want to spend some time on this bike trip because not everybody does a huge trip like this, right? So first of all, did you bike much beforehand? Did you spend much time on a bicycle? Not at all. No, no. seriously. Really? Yeah. I had had, I had had like a crappy fold up bike that I'd found, I think in the alleyway behind my house that sometimes I would go to work on or whatever. And I'd done some downhill mountain biking years previous, but I was one of those people that thought road bikes were like nerdy and, and, and dorky and like those people in their spandex and stuff. Okay. So was not a, was not a cyclist or a cycle, a bike enthusiast at all. So other than the meager amount of money you had to spend on food, what do you remember from those first couple weeks of, uh, of getting through BC and Alberta, I guess? I remember how dang hard it was. We got, so we started in Langley and got to hope on the first night. And that's all flat. Like, it was great. Um, and we're like, oh, this is going to be a breeze. Like, this is so much fun. And then the next day we started up. We took the number three. So we started up the hill to Manning Park, I guess. And after 45 minutes, there was like the, the rest stop on the side of the road with all the garbage cans. And we were just like opening our bags, being like, this don't need it. This don't need it. And like put most of the stuff with a little sign that said free beside the garbage cans. But immediately ditched. Like, you know, all the books we were going to read. And and I also, like, <laughs> I did it all backwards. Like, the one thing I kept was my, like, punk rock leather jacket with, like, metal studs and, and paint all over it. And that took up an entire 
one of my bags and that was a quarter of the stuff I had. I don't know why I didn't give it to my mom to get her to ship to me later, but needed to have that. And then I'm sitting here outside Manning being like, cook stove? Nope, don't need it. You know, water purification? Nope, don't need that. Someone's going to love it and getting rid of all the survival camp stuff so I could keep my dumb jacket. (laughs) Um, Definitely did everything wrong, which was really funny because we'd meet other cyclists that are that are pros and doing it the way you're supposed to. And they'd look at us and they're eating whatever. I remember these one people who are having, you know, like a nice on their stove, cook some rice and a nice, like hearty vegetable meal. And we had just got Oreo ice cream sandwiches. And they're like, is that your breakfast? And we're like, heck yeah, we're doing it. And then they left up the road. And then an hour later we passed them and just zinged right by. And we're like, we don't need your rules. Like, <laughs> I think had I known what we were getting ourselves into and had we had any brains about us we wouldn't have done it because we did it all wrong but it was that being so naive and stubborn kind of pushed us to keep going did you figure some more things out along the way and change how you were doing things or was that pretty much the 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 pace you were going at and the, the choices you were making the whole way across the country um i mean we got we got better and we figured out when things like meal times and what to eat when and and you know carbs in the morning and protein at night and and things like that was a we we dialed it in but i don't think we ever would have made any other cyclists proud okay (laughs) yeah well and so what kind of experiences did you have along the way because all of a sudden your life is like this grueling physical experience but also it's wide open as well too with options and possibilities what unexpected events happened uh during that trip to you well, yeah, so many things. One of one of the things that stood out to me the very most was it took us 10 days, I think, to get, get to Calgary. And it was on day seven that um, I phoned a, a bunch of friends that were at a... Before we left, we used to go to this open mic night every week. And it was kind of my favorite part of the week. And that was the hardest thing to leave. So every Thursday, we'd phone the open mic and say hi and tell everyone where we were. And I was talking to one friend and I just said, what's new? Like, I haven't seen you in a week. Like, what what have you done? Like, what's exciting? And, and he was kind of like, well, it's, it's only been a week. Like what? Nothing's new. Like, of course, nothing's new. I went to work all week, had a couple beers on the weekend, nothing's new. And here I am in Castlegar or something like that. Thinking of the last week being every day is something new. Every day is something that's seen towns I've never been to experiencing just this life I've never had before. And it kind of, put that it was an instant success to what motivated the trip in the first place because i was able to look back and say holy crap everything is new and and i never want to say oh it's only been a week again i want every day and every week to have something notable and exciting in it so that was i think that's my biggest takeaway maybe i should have started small and worked up to that but (laughs) no that's that's brilliant man that's fantastic and like i I think Everybody experiences that when they take that leap of going on a big trip and doing something like large scale like that, that you do realize that really quickly that, yep, everything I'm experiencing, there's so much stimulus coming in and so much fresh experiences just like feels so good. Totally. How long did it take for you guys to get to Halifax? It took us 95 days, but because we left with no money, we would bike for two or three days. And then if we found a town we liked, we would kind of set up at a coffee shop and put up a sign that would say cycling across Canada, looking for work. 
Um, I remember just making like beaded hem necklaces because it was something that I could produce that was very easy and only required a small satchel of uh, materials uh, just so we could sell something on kind of on the side of the road. And which was funny because I don't think anyone actually wanted a hem necklace, but people would, you know, I'd sell them for five bucks and people would give us a hundred bucks and just say here, you know, like seriously, like, yeah, I think people were really when you're and they would see our bikes and they would see these tanks of bikes and, and us sitting there and they, like we were on an adventure. And I think it feels good to to support that. A couple times, actually, we'd be cycling and someone would pull over and they'd be like, are you doing this for cancer or like what's what's your cause? And we're like, oh, I don't know. We're having fun. And they're like, oh, that's a pretty good cause. Here's 50 bucks. Wow. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. It, yeah, it was definitely. Uh, yeah, it, it warmed the heart and was cool to see just people's response to it for sure. We didn't even have like cell phones. Like there was no social media. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't. So it wasn't like. I feel like if I did that now, I'd be like, look at me. This is what we're doing. Everyone check me out and like maybe have a GoFundMe or something. Yeah. But back then it was just totally like, just here we are. We're doing it. Want to buy a necklace? That's really, I don't know, man. That's like inspiring to hear actually that um, people were so generous. That's really nice. It's it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, actually, just the question off the top of my head, which province struck you as the most... Um, I guess, was that difference from province to province with the generosity that you were getting? Or did you kind of find that the whole way across? Uh, no, definitely province to province. Um, I think Manitoba was the nicest. Like, they, you know, their license plates say friendly Manitoba, and it's not wrong. Like, people were really, really kind there. And I also think that in Manitoba, if someone's on a big overladen bicycle, it's pretty obvious that they've come pretty far already. Yeah. Like once once we got to Ontario, you know, people are just kind of like, oh, are you cycling from Toronto to to Montreal or something? And we're going, oh, no, we're across Canada. But in, in Manitoba, everyone just says, well, you've come far no matter where you're coming from. So it was a, there was almost this maybe just like credibility or something that, that came about right away. Not, not to diminish people's just genuine kindness. Like people were, a couple times we would be going and, and one time this hailstorm hit. And strangely enough, we didn't wear bicycle helmets the entire trip. We had them, but it was just stinking hot out. And usually there's no cars on the road for miles. And I remember being in, in Manitoba and out of nowhere, this thing just crapped on the ground in front of me. And I didn't know what it was and realized it was hail. And, and, you know, people always say the size of golf balls. And this was just under the size of a golf ball but if that had hit me probably would have knocked me out like it was not safe and also first time i put on my helmet and first time i pulled out my giant leather jacket uh, <laughs> to protect me and we were just going and, and there was nothing around and we saw this house and we just biked up and said there's this storm we're in the middle of nowhere can we hang out here and the person was like yeah absolutely like get in here and and made us tea and sandwiches and um it was it was still pretty early in the day. Like they were like, "You want to need a place to stay? You want to stay for a couple of days? Like you're more than welcome." And we waited out the storm and continued on. But just to walk up to a total stranger's house and say, "Can I hide here?" and yeah. have them be like, without any hesitation, not just yes, but yes, please come on in. 
And I like to think that would happen anywhere, but that's that's where it was tested. Okay, that's cool, man. Yeah, people are nice. People are nice. And it's uh, let's hear for friendly Manitoba. Too. <laughs> yeah. give, some, give some props to Manitoba. Uh, okay, so 95 days, you get to Halifax, you, you fresh off this amazing experience. Uh, and then and then boom, you're in this new part of the country. And the whole different phase of life. What do you decide to do at that point? So the bike trip was me and one other person. And then there was a friend from that same open bike night who, when we had said we're going on this bicycle trip, uh, this friend uh, whose name is Tom Hess, for anyone that knows him from his years on Pender, he was like, well, I'm going to hitchhike to Halifax and meet you there. And he was he was 17 and he was still in high school at the time. And he didn't tell his parents. And on the day he graduated, he got his report card from school, took it home, gave it to his folks and was like, it's been a blast. Can you drive me to the highway? I'm hitchhiking to Halifax. (laughs) (laughs) And bless his parents were like, okay. And so he had got to Halifax hitchhiking like two days before we got there. Um, He had hitchhiked up to Alaska and all around, pretty much all around Canada to to fill the 95 days that took us on bikes but he had got there a couple days earlier and we all met up at a coffee shop and put all our money on the table which i think was six dollars um and said like what what now and it was september or almost october so <laughs> wasn't gonna bike back and didn't want to hitchhike back or anything and so we yeah we all applied for jobs and um found found places to stay uh that night like we just we and we just cycled around and we found a community center. It's kind of an activist community center. And we went in there and just said, hey, we're we're new in town. And we just made it across the country. Do you know anywhere we could stay? And they hooked us up with uh, with some friends who, three different houses that we all stayed on their couches uh, for a couple weeks while we got jobs and then eventually ended up renting a, a house together. And then, yeah, lived there for, for two years. So... And did, do you feel like you changed as a person after that experience? Because some people go on big trips and they'll just sort of reintegrate back into what they were doing before, or other people just make dramatic changes in their lives. Like, what was your experience after that trip was over? How did it change you? Yeah, it was a huge, it was a huge change for my, uh, I, I realized a lot about how much potential I had or or I, what I believe anyone has uh, and how much there is around you just waiting to be soaked up or, or grabbed at. So um, I definitely started having this thing of what do I what do I want my life to look like and believing that I had the power to to try and make that a reality. And And that came from the bike trip. But then also being in Halifax, which is a town, a very... It's a very old town with a very young population because there's almost no other than military and, and the port. There's no economy there. There's no jobs. It's just seven universities. So everyone in Halifax feel like what was 20 years old at the time and moving from from Langley, which was a kind of working class kind of conservative town that you know, if you didn't mow your lawn, you would get a, you would get a complaint and someone would come and say, this is rated the prettiest community. So you mow your lawn living in Halifax, where it's just like, you look out the window and there's 10 people walking by with guitars on their back to go to 
to play music in a kitchen or or uh concerts or or arts and plays and all this stuff it was just so vibrant and i think that that also really changed me in in different ways than the bike trip did but it just made me realize how much life and community there can be and that yeah that i just wanted to to play more music and and have more fun and that i wanted kind of work and response not responsibilities but i wanted the grind to definitely take a take a back seat to enjoying myself yeah that's a really excellent description of halifax i've only ever been there once but uh i love that description it sounds like a like a beautiful place to be it right? was great yeah yeah so you started playing music more while you were there yeah yeah so i had been um like playing at this open mic night in langley that we left behind but it was you know, it was just kind of kids playing tunes, but didn't, no one, I think, had aspirations of being musicians or being in bands or playing concerts. Like it didn't, for some reason, no one felt that was a, a option available to them. And maybe that was because of this Langley mentality that is like, no, you go find a trade and you, and you work every day and that's it. Like you can't live as a musician. And then getting to Halifax was kind of the opposite where... I remember, yeah, getting a job and then people were on the weekend. They're like, well, let's go busking. And we go busk and we would make three times as much as I did make my job in half the amount of time. And I just thought this is, this is so much more fun. And, and in a, in a large city, busking is a, is a viable option that also I, I personally think really adds to a community to have music on the streets all the time. And Halifax was one of those places where you couldn't walk down the street without hearing hearing a fiddle going somewhere. Cool. So uh, you said that you were there for two years, and then you get this call from your dad. Yeah. And this unexpected uh, request to come back out to the West Coast. So you got to pack your life up. Uh, were you disappointed to leave? Yes and no. It's um, I really... I am someone that loves community and people and I was disappointed to leave behind the the friends and community I'd made out there, but had also, I was really excited to, to see the people I'd grown up with. So it's hard to feel like you live two places at once and Halifax was far enough away that, that it, it felt like one or the other. Okay, we'll jump back into the, uh, the the Pender side of things here. So you talked about the the first uh, few days of being on the island in 2010 when you came back and a lot of things going on and feeling really good about it. What was going on for you those first uh, couple of years while you were on the island? So, yeah, I'd moved here with, with my ex-partner, Christy, and then Tom, the, the kid who hitchhiked to Halifax, he was had met up with this person Jackson and they'd been playing music together and they didn't really know where they wanted to live. And I said, well, come move to Pender. Like it's, it's awesome. Christy and I were busking at the farmer's market every weekend and, and making good money and just kind of living on the beach and being whatever we were 23 year old kind of bums on Pender. And it was a, it was a good life. So uh, I got Jackson and Tom to move here and we started a band uh together called the pesky alders and that just took off right away like it was you know we kind of looked and said well i play cello you play guitar 
you play fiddle, you play banjo, that's four different instruments. And we started playing, what, just at the farmer's market at first. And then at the farmer's market, people would say, oh, well, we've got this dinner party tonight. Can you come play on our deck? Or can you come play our wedding or, or whatever? And suddenly we kind of looked at each other and said, wait, we're a, we're a band that we're sought after. And then Adrian Schomberger on Pender was like, I want to record you. Let's put out an album. And suddenly that happened. And that band took up a lot of time for the first few years on Pender. And was also, it really kind of drove home this idea that I was learning, which like I, I'd assume Pender was a place where there was no opportunities because it's so small. And then I realized it was the opposite where it's full of opportunities because it's so small and everyone's trying to trying to do as much as they can. Whereas I think if, if that same band had existed in the city, we'd be competing with hundreds of other bands and, and, and clawing our way through. Whereas here it was just, like I said, people coming and saying, we want to record you. We want to like, can you play the bar? Or can you play this dance or whatever? And it was nice to see so much, so much want for, for arts and music and, and kind of everything. Yeah. Well, okay. Could you actually just explain that a little bit more? Because I think that a, like a lot of people have moved here in the last two and a half or three years. And this concept of recognizing that because it's a smaller place, more opportunity exists and that there's, it's, it's a perspective shift almost, right? That mm -hmm. needs to take place. But I think it's difficult to sort of see that on the outside looking in, but you sort of have to like get into the island a little bit and put yourself out there and, and want to attract opportunities. But other than the music side of things is, have you seen that uh, happen in your experience on Pender and other ways where there's vast opportunity that you might not have recognized prior to, to um, integrating into the community? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, around the same time that the pesky alders was happening, we were playing music. I was at the recycling society and they used to just have these piles of bikes outside and I, I was always taking them. And, and one day one of them said, what are you, what are you doing with all these? And I said, Oh, I just, you know, I learned bike mechanics on the, on the bike trip. I'm just fixing them and, and giving them to friends and everything. And they said, well, do you want to fix bikes here? And we looked at this big empty room and, and just kind of said, yeah, that would be awesome. And, and suddenly like it was, yeah, a couple months later. And then we started the recycled bike shop, which was something that, you know, I had thought about doing in the city, but it's like, okay, I got to rent a place. I got to pay for everything myself. I've got to put so much work into it to fix bicycles. And here it was just like, we've got the space, we've got the bikes, we've got the community, let's make it happen. And then suddenly, suddenly I had a bike shop for, for a job and, it's still going, you know, 13 years later. Wow. And then as as well, too, like um, with uh, with other kinds of employment on the islands, I know that you're obviously a, a contractor now. And, you know, how how did that wind up uh, unfolding for you to get to that point along the way? Yeah, I was working. I spent years on Pender as a landscaper and then uh, injured my knee seven years ago and couldn't do the couldn't do the heavy lifting and the rock work and, and stuff like that required of landscaping and was offered a job uh, doing carpentry, which I, my grandpa had a carpentry company and taught me to use the table saw like literally as a four year old, Whoa. which uh, <laughs> maybe reflects poorly on him, but no, he taught me how to do it right. So I 
come from a, a family background of of carpentry and uh, had started yeah started working for a company on Pender and after several years of that um, it was it was actually really neat my uh, my boss came to me and said like it, it was you know kind of time for a raise and he said look I can't pay you what you're worth like I can't like you've you've climbed to the top of what you can do as an employee. I think you should start your own company and I'm, I'm here to help you do that. Uh, which exactly is that, is that kindness and is that community that says, let's make this happen for you. It, Cause he could have easily just said, sick, I have someone who's overqualified. I'm going to keep paying them this lower rate. But he just said, no, let's, let's make this happen, which was a huge, a huge blessing for me and really sort of set me up to, to where I am now. Cool. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit, because I think that ties into the idea of uh, opportunity existing in this small community that uh, might not exist in a larger community as well, too, right? Like, there's lots of uh, competition in the trades, carpentry, contracting, outside of the uh, community, but um, maybe not as much here. And so, you ventured out on your own and you started your own business, which, did you ever, ever actually see yourself doing that? as a as a contractor carpenter no like i i have lots of business ideas as a as a musician and as a bike mechanic and as as all this other stuff but as a contractor that it's it's funny because i had worked carpentry jobs in the city and just thought this is so nasty and this is so just the the mindset and the and the idea that happens with trade sometimes which is like this is rough and tough you gotta be miserable to be here or or for anyone that is familiar with it, it's like you, you show up and someone says, well, we, you take that guard off your saw. We don't want to be safe. Like you gotta, you gotta be a man and potentially cut your leg off or something. And it's, <laughs> it's so bloody dumb. So I totally never pictured wanting to even really work in trades after my younger years. But yeah, working for, for Tavis at T-Mart contracting on Pender totally changed that and, and made me realize that it doesn't have to be that kind of ego grumbly tough guy industry so and so he gave you the inspiration like i guess initially at first through like the kind of uh work environment he created yeah exactly we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the phone but i really wanted to uh get this in the interview because i thought it's really interesting that your guiding philosophy about what you wanted to create uh, yourself in terms of like the working environment for your your contracting business, maybe you could explain a little bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, one of the motivating factors when when I was told I, I had support in starting a company was being able to provide a work environment for people that didn't fit that that kind of gritty trades uh, show up and and be miserable and and work hard and put your life in danger. And at that time, I knew of a lot of women that were having a hard time getting into trades, queer people that were having a hard time getting into trades, and people that had anxiety or or mental setbacks that made trades just a little too intimidating. So seeing the support that I had to start a company and seeing this need for trades work that that was less toxic, basically, I think was the the real motivator in in starting good measure and making and making a company that i hope 
feels different and feels different for the employees and feels different for me and feels different for the clients. And so how long have you been uh, running this company for? It started January 2020, which Ooh. didn't last long. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was pretty funny because, yeah, I think I did one small project and then it was COVID yeah. and and there was no work, which also made it very hard because I had left my other job and left his other stuff. So when it comes time to clat EI or, or CERB or all this stuff, basically I was I was going into it unemployed. So that was a setback. But actually something really cool happened, which uh I had a a friend on another island who had some money and basically wanted a wanted a cabin built and we did this cool work trade thing where she said like she didn't she had enough money for the materials but not for the labor i had a bunch of friends that were all like a friend that was down from dawson and couldn't go home dawson city yukon and couldn't go home because of covid and, and travel and all this stuff so there was all these people just kind of with nothing to do and i said well let's go to this other island we'll all quarantine together and then we'll build this cabin and i'm gonna run it like a like a carpentry school and because we're all effectively working for free, which no one wants to do, but we, we got eight untrained people and myself and, and we go here and we have all the materials and the and the friend of mine who we were building the cabin for paid for the food and bought us some beer. And we just spent three or four weeks with this this crew of of ragtag folks building a, a cabin from scratch and uh, got it done and. And it's still there and we go, we go stay at it sometimes, but it was kind of this neat, it, you know, it wasn't, it's not part of my company or anything like that. Like it wasn't this, but it was this way to fill the void there and, and really feel good about it. And it, for me, that solidified that I wanted to be a carpenter that taught people that would take anyone with no experience and be really patient and say, let's, let's build things and, and build relationships while building houses and, and make this a positive experience and try and change what it feels like to be in trades, especially in a small town. That's super cool, man. I think the idea of uh, doing something quote unquote for free, right. And just saying yes to something that might not have like the initial uh, reward to it always yields good results, right? Because when we wind up saying no to experiences like that, like, oh, no, no, traditionally, like, you know, I need to get this in order to do that. And I'm just going to shut down that whole opportunity. Saying no usually doesn't lead to like, you know, interesting experiences or interesting results. So I love that story, man. That's, that's awesome. Well, it was kind of this perfect, this perfect storm. What's the opposite of perfect storm? Like the perfect storm in a good way where people were collecting CERB. So they like doing this project didn't take away from their ability to make money. Yeah. Um, and some of the people didn't have anywhere to live because they couldn't get home because of COVID and all this stuff. So like, I, I, I would never ask someone to, to take a month off work <laughs> because no one I know can afford to do that right now. But, but with CERB and with my friend, you know, paying for our food and the way it all worked out, it was it's kind of miraculous like i can't picture that happening again in such a effective way that, that didn't cost anyone a lot and right. I, I think everyone walked away from it feeling like they had uh had learned a lot and and took something out of it like i don't feel and i hope no one walked away from it feeling like oh shoot i just gave so much for nothing 
Yeah, well, you said effectively you wanted to run it as a carpentry school. So I'm assuming that everybody walked away learning more about carpentry than they did before they started. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty great. And I think maybe the opposite of a perfect storm could be a perfect rainbow. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's another perfect one out there, but uh, we'll go with perfect rainbow for now. So uh, you also you said as well, too, that um, you specifically try to employ women as well, too, because traditionally in the trade of carpentry, that, that's not necessarily common. Totally. And, and I think that even when it is common and there are lots of places that do hire women and, and when I say women, I also want to include queer people and non-binary people, like really anyone that's not just a dude. Right. And, uh, and people will still, companies will hire anyone, but then they don't pay attention to inappropriate remarks or, or bullying or, pulling something out of someone's hand and saying, let me do that for you because I'm going to do it better or things like that. So I think that that just hiring people isn't the goal, but being like, no, let's let's do this in a way that that feels good and treating people with respect and understanding and seeing the ways people are traditionally treated in these roles and seeing how twisted it is yeah totally man and it's awesome and i love that you are speaking about this right now and thanks for answering these questions and and commenting about this because when we talked about this i was so moved by what you're explaining to me that this is the the foundation ideologically about what you're trying to accomplish through having a business where you're building material things right like that's not just what you're attempting to do you're attempting to create a space that's uh, safe and encouraging for the the people that are working uh, for and with you that's really awesome dude thanks i th- i also think it's like i really want to be clear on that too that i don't i don't think i've like got all the answers or done it right or i'm above things i've learned in my past like i've i've learned so much in doing this from the people i i work with and and work for and things like that that i continually every day will see a behavior in myself or that that is problematic or that is exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to do. And it's, it's, uh, it's been a huge learning process. And yeah, like I said, just to be clear, I clear. I want to make sure that I'm not sitting here being like, I've, I'm the best. I've figured it out. I'm above, uh, <laughs> patriarchy and I'm above, uh, privilege in any way. Cause I'm, I'm definitely not, and I'm learning all the time. Yeah, for sure. That's that's good. I think I think uh, anybody who's self aware is uh, learning every day and recognizing, whoa, I could do this better, yeah. <laughs> like every single day, because uh, we're all we're all making mistakes every day, and and hopefully uh, we're all learning uh, as we go. Well, let's go back into talking about music here, because you were talking about the Pesky Alders earlier, and. Uh, a lot of people remember that band from being on Pender uh, back in back in the day. And so you said that uh, at the time you had uh, gigs that were being booked, people asking you to play in certain events and everything. And so what happened to the Pesky Alders and like what happened with your uh, your music and playing music after that? The Pesky Alders, I think, after three or four years, the timing just kind of worked out that everyone started wanting different things in life. 
Um, Christy went and traveled to India for a year at the same time that Tom bought a cranberry farm in Nova Scotia for $12,000 or something, like 40 acres with a trailer on it. His life is farming and gardening, so he was really excited to go over there. And I think Jackson stayed on Pender for one more winter and then ended up uh, moving down to New Orleans to to pursue that kind of country music busking like that's such a hub for for that sort of for that sort of music and i stuck around on pender and i think i ended up in two or three bands almost immediately after because the pesky alders had done so many tours around the gulf islands and and vancouver and, and areas like that that uh pretty soon it was we had so many connections it was really easy for me to say hey i don't have a band anymore who who wants to play music and there was three or four people that did right away. Cool. And so music's a big part of your life, obviously. Yeah, that's my... It, it's kind of carpentry by day and then music by night now. Um, I've After... I was actually in a really unique and great position after living in Halifax and living in Vancouver and being on the Gulf Islands that I had so many musical connections that... If I had a friend from Halifax that says, oh, I want to play in Vancouver. Can you hook me up with a show? I'd be able to say, well, let's do a show in Vancouver. Let's do a show in Victoria. Uh, we can even do a show on Pender. And and I started booking a lot of shows for other bands uh, and, and vice versa. When my friends wanted to go out east, I was able to say, oh, well, I remember this meeting this person in New Brunswick and meeting these people in, in Montreal and started being able to put together uh, tours for bands. And then that's kind of grown over the years to to the point of where I have a, a a company now that that does book tours and concerts for folk musicians and and rock bands and punk bands and all sorts of stuff. Um, and that takes up way more time than I think it would as well. Why does it take up a lot of time? It's just a, I guess it's just doing really well. There's lots of bands that that I work with and that uh covid was obviously slow but now coming out of it i think that so many bands just took two years off performing and are like well let's hit the road so now it's uh kind of constant and in in booking and and playing in bands and stuff for me as well so what does that look like from behind the scenes in terms of doing the booking so you're having to uh contact venues and arrange certain times and dates with bands playing there what what are the logistics involved in in doing all this it's it's getting easier all the time but at, at first it was you know i would call everyone i did know in in the cities where i had connections and say can you throw a show and and this is the band this is their needs and then trying to fill in the blanks and, and filling in the blanks was kind of the fun part because it would involve, you know, maybe going on Facebook and, and saying, just like searching Saskatoon folk musician page or a group or whatever, right? Similar to the ones we have on Pender and just jumping in and saying, hey, I'm bringing a band through. This is what they sound like. Here's a link to their music can you send me the the music venues or the promoters or the other bands? And then just trying to make contacts, just really, you know, a shot in the dark. And, and I think one of the best parts about being a musician is we all depend on each other to make it work. So people would be really open and excited to say, here's the bar that plays good shows, or here's the hall, 
here's the local band, maybe they know, and building these connections. And, and after doing that for years, now it's now it's pretty easy where just someone says, okay, these are the towns I want to play in. And I'm able to look at my list and say, okay, here's the country bar. Here's the underground punk venue. Here's the coffee shop. Where do you want to play? Here's the contact and just kind of piece it together. Okay, so you're uh, handing out the information to the artists, or you're making the calls for them, or I, I'd usually make the well, I I totally give people the option if they want to do it themselves. That's awesome. I'm happy to share the resources, but if they want me to do it, it kind of has this added. I guess I guess I'm technically a booking agent, and it it means that people aren't just dealing with someone saying, "Oh, hey, I'm a good band. I swear, can I come play your place?" It's me saying, "This is a band I vouch for." they're on tour you're gonna like them so it's kind of using the the resources i have and the the social credit i guess okay and so you've built up a ton of relationships with different people across the country over the years doing this yeah neat see i didn't even know you did that <laughs> yeah well the funny like it's i bring a lot of bands to pender uh not not recently but i, I feel like when a bar that I won't name used to be open past 8 p.m., it was pretty easy to get a band to come play Pender um, and, and have a good time. And, and now it's, you know, we do, I do a lot of shows at the Airplane Hangar at Ohana Farms. And it's been a while since I've done shows at the Legion, but we'll just do shows here and there. Um, and I'm definitely looking forward to, to doing more. But most of it, it's true, most of it happens off of Pender. And... You know, something I want to talk about as well, too, is that you are somebody who, uh, just through what you're describing there, is a connector. Like, you connect a lot of people, right? And I yeah. know over the years, you've connected a lot of people to Pender Island by bringing a lot of people to the island. Because it seems as if your uh, your friendship group and your community is quite vast. Just want to talk about that a little bit, because you've, you've uh, introduced this island to a lot of people who might not have come here otherwise. Uh, what's the impetus for that? And uh, how has that benefited your life? <laughs> That's definitely, uh, it's a challenge in a lot of ways. Because uh, for for anyone listening that does know me, uh, or know what, I, how I dress and what I, uh, what I do. It's, it's, uh, the people that I brought are, are the queer kids who wear all black and, and are very politically minded and then things like that. So I think it's beautiful. Like lots of them, they work at the school and they work in like so much community happens through the people that I brought to Pender. But, and, and I think over the years, more and more people see that but definitely at first it was like who are the who are the young kids that live in trailers and wear all black and and whatever and and meanwhile we're like oh you need help at your with your firewood like we're there like totally wanting to be part of the community but there was some major resistance to that especially at first when i first moved here someone broke into the medicine beach liquor store and we were right away, it was identified as me who did it, which it wasn't. They stole cigarettes. I'm allergic to cigarettes. Like, I've never had a cigarette in my life. And then a week later, it was like, oh, no, it wasn't Lori. It was Tom. And Tom's like, I was off island. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. It wasn't Tom. It was Jackson. And it was just this thing where, like, people were like, it, it was one of them. I don't care. I don't know who it was. There's no facts. But it was like someone broke into the liquor store. It was it was them. And yeah, I remember, yeah, there's so many instances at first where it was just like, we were the bad people. We were, we were stealing or I was a drug dealer or, uh, 
anything that that went bad was our fault and yeah i i laugh about it now it did really suck at the time to be pouring my heart into a community and and doing volunteer work and starting the bike shop and and all the stuff and then to know that some of the people walking by are looking at you being like you're a criminal you're destroying this island and it just that wasn't that wasn't us no totally not and if you don't mind i'd like to talk about this for a little bit because i i think that um many of us myself included have these misconceptions about people in the world based on how they look right and so you know you wear a lot of black you got tattoos you got uh people who like you said come to the island who fit the same description and and what you're describing is basically uh like a prejudice or like some ridiculous profiling of somebody based on the way they look like then they're probably a criminal right yeah it's pretty ridiculous one of the the icing on the cake was when i was doing landscaping it was like landscaping and property maintenance and and things like that. And one of the things was like checking on this house and making sure their generator was going and all their water systems were good because it was people that didn't live on the island. And it, it's like the story feels too good to be true. I was because I was in their house all the time. I'd see the pictures of their family and I know what these people look like. And then I was at the the BCL and I was outside. A couple of my friends had gone in and this, these people came out and they were talking and they were basically talking about like me and my friends and, and, and how, how did we get to Pender? Why? Like, cause they, their thought of this place is like, it's like Whistler, right? And they're speaking ill of us and they walked by and I just wanted to be like, I have the keys to your house. <laughs> like you think I'm a garbage person and you don't trust me. I'm literally in your house every week, making sure the water stays on. <laughs> And it was, yeah, it was like in a weird way, infuriating. And then also one of the best moments of my life to be like, you know what? These people have no clue how the world works and what and what's going on right now. Yeah, and, that's pretty funny. Well, but not not totally funny either. Yeah, right? but ironically funny. Yeah, totally. Uh, and so, you know, with maybe just to tie this up a little bit here, like that getting back to the idea of all your, uh, your friends that you have brought over to the island over the years, obviously, like there's a little bit of a downside that you were describing there. But what was the, uh, the upside of uh, bringing so many uh, friends over to this community? I think, I mean, there's upsides for me as, as someone <laughs> living in a small town that I well, Going that, way that, back to what we were talking about with my dad, where he's like, you know, be it be it your friend's kids or this old person or whatever, you can make relationships with anyone. That's super true, but it is also nice for me to have friends on the island that, that are political in the same way I am and are queer in the same way I am and like the music I like. And, and this stuff is, is really nice for me. But I do also think it's really nice to when when someone asks for help on the online market and then it's me and three of my friends that show up to help clear out their house or move their couch or or fix their car or whatever it is, uh, it does feel really rewarding to every time someone says, wow, by the way, you've changed my opinion on people. Why is it you that show up and then the all the clean cut kind of smiling and waving people aren't here. And I don't mean that in any way to say that the clean cut smiling, waving people aren't good people. It's, it's just, 
I think it's inherent in in the community that I'm a part of that helping people and, and doing the right thing is just like at the forefront of, of everything I want to do and, and that, that a lot of my friends want to do. Yeah, that's cool, man. It it really is. I, th- I think it's great. Like over the years, I've got to know a number of the people that have come to the islands because you've uh, drawn them in and they seem all like wonderful people. And you mentioned the name Jackson a few times. Man, I really like Jackson a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a champ. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's funny even as we're having this conversation, I'm trying to picture someone listening who maybe doesn't know me and has no idea what we're talking about. And then it's like, what community are you, what, what does this mean? You know, like what aren't people just people? And it's like, it's kind of funny to look at it and be like, no, when, when me and my friends are out and about, it's obvious. Like, it's like, why are those 10 people only wearing black and why are they, you know, like it's a, it's a funny thing. Like, I don't feel like we're that different, but the way we're talking about it and the way you're like, yeah, you and your friends, it's very obvious that we stand out. So, Totally. And that's a good point, right? So for people who are listening who have no idea what we're talking about, yeah, it, it probably would sound really strange, right? But uh, I hope that this is making sense. Um, <laughs> and this isn't too Pender-centric exactly uh, what we're talking about here. But I, uh, I, I think that it's... It's a universal subject, the idea that people who uh, look a different way get perceived a different way. Yeah. Anywhere in the world, I would imagine. And like most of us, myself included, do what we can to kind of fit in for the most part. Right. By how we dress and... uh and then it just, life is a little easier that way. I know that whenever I've been in different situations, like whether I was living in Alberta or in Montreal or whatever, I would I would dress a little bit differently based on how other people did it to sort of like fit in a little bit more. And it certainly made the uh, experience more seamless, I found, over the years. Totally. Yeah. Well, then sometimes I definitely feel like as someone who... Like when I moved to Pender, I think my hair was like four different colors and I had a jacket that had like big metal spikes on it. And that's how I felt and truly still feel the most comfortable. But it takes energy to like look that different and deal with people. Right. So it's like I definitely even tone it down to just be like, okay, I'm just wearing some black clothes now. But I I totally see that like depending on where you go, sometimes it's just like, Let's blend in. I just don't want to think about it. I just want to like live my life and and not be regarded as weird or or different or from somewhere else because my clothes are more comfortable or or more rugged or more vibrant or whatever. Totally. And that's an interesting statement that you made that it it does take a lot of energy to be looking quite different because that's how you want to. That's how you feel more comfortable. But then the energy required in order to uh, navigate your way through, uh, you know, experiences out wherever you are in the world because people are projecting energy towards you. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's funny on, on Pender. Most of the time I'm at work now, so I'm just wearing whatever work clothes. But then if I put on my own clothes you know, which it might be skinny jeans and a pair of shiny, shiny boots and a, and like a leather jacket or something. Everyone's like, what's the occasion? Where are you going? What's going on? And I'm like, I'm, I'm just wearing my clothes. Like really, it, we don't need to read that much into what people are wearing or a relevant thought. Uh, something that happened the other day was uh, a friend of mine was talking about someone who was at 
an event like a couple months ago and we were trying to get to who this person was. And then they're like, yeah, they were, you know, they had a mustache and whatever. And then eventually they're just like, oh, they really look like they're from Toronto. Like they're just, the way they dress was really <laughs> Toronto. And I hate to say it, but right away I knew who they were talking about. And I was like, oh, that guy, of course. And it's like, he really didn't fit in. And he was just well-dressed. <laughs> but on Pender, that was also like this, oh, yeah, well-dressed guy from Toronto. Now I know. That's, yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Ah, oh, geez. It's a, it's a interesting subject, but uh, my gosh. Uh, actually, I wanted to uh, talk about a, a turn in your life that uh, didn't happen that we talked about a little while ago. And that's um, after high school, you talked about going to uh, post-secondary education. And there was a, a dream that you had at that point that uh, that didn't happen that could have changed the trajectory of your life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So after... I was someone in high school that, like, maybe I have undiagnosed ADHD or something. A lot of people that are diagnosed with it constantly tell me that I have it. I'm not a doctor, but I, I did definitely have a hard time paying attention in school. Uh, and I just didn't really care. And, uh, like, all my dreams that I had in my life were more important than learning social studies or whatever. And then in, in grade 11, I had this teacher that was just so good at what he did and made it seem so fun and made every student in the class feel like they were important and taught in this way. I remember him saying, he said, if, if you want to pass this class, but you fail, I have failed you. Um, and he would like, if you did a test and you got questions wrong, he would let you retake the test as many times as you wanted because he was like, the point is to to teach you the the curriculum. And if you get it wrong, then I say, you've got it wrong, move on. You didn't learn anything. You just got it wrong. So you can take the test again because you'll, you'll know the answer this time and you're going to learn something. And having this teacher that, that taught in this way that made sense to me and inspired me and allowed me to succeed um, made me realize what a, what a gift that is. And I immediately said, I want to be a high school teacher. And I went from being that kid that was constantly, you know, like finish this home, like promise me I'll do this piece of homework and I won't fail you. Grade 11 hit and it was honor roll, straight A's. Grade 11, 12 were both that way. And I just, I, he'd also given me the tools to go to my other teachers and say, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm bad at. Can I exist in this classroom in this way? to prove to you, I know this stuff and, and whatever. And most of the times it worked and it changed, it changed my life like a lot realizing the tools to communicate and realizing I don't have to exist in this way that maybe the, the school system is structured to. And I said, well, I want to be a teacher. That's what I, that's what I want to give to the world and, and where I want to exist in the world. So I started university to be a teacher and the dumbest thing happened where the, my second semester was over and I got a letter in the mail saying, you, you, or you, I was trying to sign up for the next semester. And they said, you can't sign up till you pay for the last semester. Um, and I said, well, no, I had a student loan that was paid for. And they said, oh, your, your student loan never came through, um, which I was unaware of. So I called them to try and get it done. And it was past the deadline. I couldn't get my student loan fixed. So I tried to figure out what happened. And the student loan company basically, said well we called the school to see if you went there and there was no 
Lawrence Brown enrolled at the school. And what had happened was they had asked my, if I have a preferred name. And I said, well, it's Lori. And when they changed the, the text box for preferred name, they put that under legal name and they changed Lawrence to Lori. So when the computer at the student loan talked to the computer at the university, just said, oh, there's no Lawrence Brown at the school. And I couldn't get my student loan. I couldn't sign up for the next year until I paid for the last one. Couldn't get another student loan if I wasn't signed up. Didn't have any money as a, as a student. And it just stopped that dead in its tracks, um, which was, I think, about the time, too, that I was like, I'm going to Halifax. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. So that helps shift you in the direction of uh, taking that bike trip as well. Yeah, totally. Wow. Because I think being a teacher was the one thing I had that was like, this is when my life is going to change. Like going back to that stagnant feeling and everything being the same. I had put some eggs into that basket and it felt taken away from me. And now this is this is my life. And I, you know, spent years being a, a busker and a bum and, and living it and now living on Bender and having a carpentry business. It's a completely different uh, life than I saw for myself. But also a really cool lesson, I think, being I bet you I would have been very, very happy doing that. I also think I would have been an entirely different person than I am now. Or or I hope my core values and everything would be the same. But, I, you know, everything in my life would look different if I were a, a teacher in, in Langley or something. Yeah, totally, right? Totally. What Every experience would have been different and uh, for sure things would have been different. But you mentioned, so your your last name is Brown because most people know you as Story? Yeah, so so funny. My my mom and dad were were only together briefly. And, uh, and when I was made or, or before I was born, you know, my dad says the typical, uh, you know, kind of patriarchal name structure, which is you take your dad's last name. And my mom said, well, Lori's story sounds stupid. <laughs> You're not going to be Lori's story. And I never was. And then I moved to Pender and, and everyone just knows my dad here. Doesn't know my mom doesn't know that. So everyone just said Lori's story. And I thought, well, that's a hell of a name. Like I, <laughs> I'm totally happy being named Lori Story. So I never, uh, never credited anyone. And uh, I very much love my mom's side of the family. And I don't think, I hope that it doesn't come as like an insult. But I, I much prefer the name Lori Story to to Lawrence Brown. You're absolutely right. It is a cool name. <laughs> Lori Story is a cool name. And so for people who don't know and people who do know that uh, your dad's a bit of an island classic. Yeah. Uh, could you could you just talk about your dad for a little bit? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I will. And then if at the end, I'm like, you need to edit this out. Maybe we'll do that. <laughs> Sounds good. Because he's, he's a very private person, too. So I there's only so much I want to say about him that, that I feel like he would be comfortable with me sharing. But maybe we shouldn't even go there, dude. I'm happy to. I think there's I think he's a really incredible and amazing person with this brain that is is so beautiful. Like he has a house that he built by himself in the seventies, you know, that, that brick for bricks, piece of wood for piece of wood. He's stubborn. He didn't let a lot of people help. Like he's done so many amazing things in his life. And he used to have a soapbox race every year. And if you've seen the engineering and the, and the way he does those things, it's a, uh, it's really incredible. And I think he has a reputation for, you know, being old school pender, a hoarder, 
has too many cars and and those those things are true but there's so many great things about him and and to him and just last night i went over to his house to decorate the christmas tree and we had this super long talk about him and his life and uh i just walked away from it thinking what a cool guy so that's a great feeling to have about uh your parents yeah totally uh and i've never had the pleasure of meeting your mom could you describe your mom a little bit yeah she's um she grew up in the music scene a lot too my her and my uncle he passed away when i was young but her and him were best friends and he was in a band that toured opening for kiss um like all around north america and she would print their t-shirts and sell their merch and then stuff like that so she's uh she's definitely grown up in the music scene with this kind of like uh lust for life and and wanting wanting everything out of it uh which was a great i feel like i'm really lucky to have the combination of parents that i have that are both weird and alternative uh and and go-getters in their own way and she runs a a t-shirt printing business which was I would help her with as a kid and, and continue to have a little t-shirt printing shop on Pender as well, which is another huge boon to working with musicians, being able to provide them with, with merchandise and stuff. So yeah, her and I are, are, we see each other all the time and talk all the time and, and she's definitely given me a lot as a, as a mother. Okay. Um, what is your mom's first name? Uh, Sheila. Sheila. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm fine. Sheila and Rob. Fantastic. Something I wanted to ask as well, too, is that uh, before we started recording, you told me what you were up to last weekend in Vancouver uh, with a project that uh, was about uh, raising money and uh, playing music. And so I thought it'd be interesting for people to hear because we're recording this right before Christmas, but it's going to come out in January. But uh, I thought it was kind of an interesting story just to sort of uh, plant some ideas in people's heads uh, about uh, possibly doing some charitable acts revolving around socks. Yeah. So we were, uh, I was putting together this big punk rock music night in Vancouver, which I think is really important, especially at wintertime. There's so many ways we get, we get down and it's hard to, we, we feel more distance from our communities, be it our, you know, Pender community or, or the music community or whatever. So started to put together this concert in Vancouver with six bands and it's kind of a all day, all night thing. And the, um, the singer of a band I play in right now, uh, that's out of Cumberland, used to used to work on the downtown east side doing outreach and distributing and, and things like that, distributing uh essentials and clothes and and hygienic products and things like that. And we we're just talking about this time of year and how to how to give and how to care for people. And he was saying that one thing that gets overlooked a lot is socks in Vancouver. And, you know, you can, you can give someone a, a really expensive, nice rain jacket and, and all these things. But if you're living outside and it's raining, like it always is in Vancouver, your feet are always wet and, and that's a nasty feeling. And, uh, you know, you, you need a new pair of socks almost every day if you don't have a laundromat to keep your socks dry. And he was just talking about that was the one thing that, not, maybe not the one thing, but something that stood out a lot to him uh, working in the downtown east side so as we were putting together this big concert in vancouver we said well let's make it a sock drive um and try and raise specifically raise money to buy new like wool socks like good quality socks to give people instead of just kind of like oh let's go to walmart and buy ten thousand socks that are that are garbage um 
yeah, so we had this this big event at the Wise Hall in Vancouver and had a couple hundred people come out and had six bands um, play. And we did a raffle, which is also really neat, seeing a bunch of companies in Vancouver, you know, local bars or skateboard shops or kind of places that are adjacent to kind of like punk rock music, you know, um, donate gift cards and skateboards and clothes and stuff that we raffled off and, and took some of the money from the tickets at the door. And we're man- we managed to give $2,200 to a couple outreach places and, and, and buy socks and, and give the money. And it was, a it was my first fundraiser like that. And one of my first kind of big events like that in Vancouver, but it, it went, really well and we had a really good time and it was uh you know two thousand two hundred dollars is a lot of money for just kind of a a bunch of a bunch of punk kids to to raise at a show um so it was we all walked away from that i think like having a lot of fun seeing a lot of good bands and raising a bunch of money for a good cause and it's nice to know that there's so much power in in community and music and 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 things like that. And it's so easy to throw a fundraiser aspect onto an event. Like that's I don't think anyone who came to that show would have liked it any more if if it were just a uh if it were just a concert. Sure. And you know, I, I love the idea of uh, it being around socks, right? Because uh it when you mentioned that earlier, I thought, oh, yeah, right. We don't necessarily think about that, right? But I think it just, for me, and the reason I wanted to talk about this a little bit more is that sometimes obvious things don't really click in our minds very easily and until we hear them. And then it's like, oh, right, of course. Of course, that would be difficult not having dry feet and uh, having wet socks. But I love the idea that, that uh, a friend of yours had the vision and the passion behind this idea and then you know helping to create this this evening it's pretty cool man it's pretty cool it was really neat and it was really cool and and i'm totally with you on that uh being like i have my ideas and projections of what i think that living in the downtown east side is like or 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 being homeless and it's wrong like it's it's and talking to someone who is at least an out outreach worker who maybe hasn't lived that life, but has, has helped those people. That's a step closer to the truth than, than I live my life at. And it was a really, it was a nice reminder to seek that out when, when trying to help or, or be helpful is, uh, stepping away from what I think is the best solution and talking to someone in that field, um, or talking to, to the people directly and saying, what, what do you need? Like, like this isn't about me and what I think about is right. It's about what you need. And that's a, a helpful way to be helpful. Totally. What do you got planned for the future? Are you going to be uh, standing up on a stage telling jokes to people? Yeah, that's my fifth job. <laughs> <laughs> after after carpentry and bikes and and musician and everything else uh and t-shirts is is the is the comedy um which has actually been a really fun uh new hobby of mine. I think um right before moving to Pender I was listening to a comedy, uh, a comedian named Mitch Hedberg, who's my very favorite. And I was like, I want to do this. And Christy Hawks, the person that I moved to Pender with, was like, you got to promise me you're going to do stand-up comedy once in your life, at least. Um, and I said, okay, I promise. And then Kyle Jones was doing a show in the 
springtime, I guess. Um, and he asked if I would, I was in his improv class and he asked if I would open for him on Pender. And I did, and it was a total hoot. Like I had so much fun and, and received so much positive feedback. And then in, there's a music festival in Cumberland and they have a comedy segment and I got asked to do that. So I went up and did it and it was really cool because Christy, who first challenged me to do comedy was there. So it was my second ever set and I got to do it in front of Christy and, and, and say, this is for you. Like you, you made me promise you that I would do this and, and here I am. So thank you. Um, and it was, it's so much fun. I, after being on stage as a musician, literally hundreds of times I don't get nervous like it's just it's so comfortable and then getting up to do comedy is so disarming like it's just it I don't know it's maybe the most vulnerable thing I felt like I've ever done it's weird like I've tried it on a handful of occasions myself and it's uh it's different than uh going up and telling a story or you know that I feel like the crowd is almost um, there's this weird tension that exists and the crowd almost feels like they're against you mm-hmm. and you have to win them over. It was, it's been such an interesting dynamic for me to experience and, uh, it's freaking scary and incredibly hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also like as a musician is like, I, like as a storyteller, your goal is to tell a story and, and you tell that story and you've succeeded. Maybe people will like it or not. And as a musician, even if you suck, you hit the last note and everyone knows the song's over and they're going to clap. It's on them. If they don't clap, it looks bad on them. With comedy, you tell a joke and people aren't going to laugh because it's over. They're going to laugh because it's funny. And if it, if they don't laugh, you just know you've failed. And it's, it's so honest in, in that sense, I think. And that makes it so scary. Yeah, but I guess it makes it that uh, rewarding as well, too, right? Because then if you're able to get that uh, reaction for people that you're seeking, the laugh, then, you know, then it's true. It's that's totally honest as well. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so what was what was your first time like on stage there? Uh, the one opening for Kyle at the hall, uh, I blacked out the whole thing. Like, like not, not like I just don't remember. I remember getting up and being so nervous and kind of fumbling a little bit. and. Then it was done and I ran outside uh, and my roommate came out and was like, that was awesome. And I was like, oh, did I tell this joke? And he was like, nope. I'm like, did I tell this one? He's like, nope. I'm like, what did I say up there? Um, But the response was so, so good. And it was really nice. And I think something I challenged myself to do before that show was to tell jokes that weren't at people's expense. Like, I think, I think, uh, you know, comedians will do what they do. I don't personally like jokes that are that are uh, rude or 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 making fun of people. And I thought there's so many ways to be funny that are clever and, and smart. And uh, and I definitely tried to do that and had a really good response. So that felt that felt really good for me and reminded me that comedy can be you can succeed at comedy um, by being witty and punny and not just by being loud and rude. Totally. And Mitch Hedberg, I don't ever remember him telling jokes that uh, punch down. Or no, exactly. Yeah. And for people who've never heard of Mitch Hedberg before, I can highly recommend, I'm sure with Lori as well, too, that uh, you check out some clips on YouTube because he was funny. Yeah. Yeah. So ridiculous. And actually, there's uh, Andrew Inanen, who lives on Pender. We both, when we met each other, realized that we were both big Mitch Hedberg fans. 
And I don't think we had a conversation for the first two years of me living here. I like we'd see each other and then just like say Mitch Hedberg jokes right off the bat. And like I'd just like see him and be like, every book is a kid's book if the kid can read. And he would be like, Rice is hungry if you're hungry and you want to eat 2,000 or something. And then we'd nod and walk away. And that was our interaction. And, and I'd see him and be like, oh, that guy's one of my best friends. <laughs> that was... That was our language with each other. That's awesome. That's really funny, dude. Wicked. We're going to wrap it up pretty uh, quick here, but uh, I want to say thank you for doing this. It's been totally cool, man. Is there anything else that uh, we didn't touch on that you wanted to share uh, before we uh, we close the chapter, the book, close the book on this? Uh... <laughs> I'm leaving Pander. No. <laughs> the book's closed. No, um, no, that was great. I really appreciate um, being here, and it's, it's nice to uh, be able to chat about about the things of, of like what it's like to be one of those weird kids in all black on Pender and, and to, uh, I mean, I, I have a lot of really great relationships on Pender, but it is also nice to be able to, I guess, like stand up for myself to the people that, that do have assumptions about, about me or any of my friends on Pender and what that's, what's that like? So I really appreciate you reaching out. And uh, I hope some people made it to the end of the of the podcast. Oh, people will for sure, man. Well, thanks, uh, thanks to you, man. I think you're a beautiful guy, and uh, you're one of the most authentic people that uh, I know. And uh, oh, thanks, yeah, and I mean that sincerely. So thanks for thanks for doing this, Lori. I'm gonna listen to every episode and make sure you've never said that before. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much to Lori for doing that interview. That was really great. I really, really enjoyed that, and I hope you enjoyed listening to that as well too. First of all, thank you for sticking around to the end, and I've recently put most of the older episodes onto the YouTube page, so you can find all the old episodes there. There are a lot of great, great interviews in the back catalog, so if you feel like checking those out, I highly recommend it. I want to say thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music to this podcast, and thank you for listening. Until next time.